0: You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network.
1: Hello and welcome to the CRM Archaeology Podcast, episode 81 for March 30th, 2016. I'm your host, Chris Webster. On today's show, we talk to Charlie Poliska about the results of a recent survey he conducted and posted on social media. So check out that survey in the show notes because the CRM Archaeology Podcast starts right now. Welcome to the show, everyone. Joining me today is Sonia in Utah.
2: Hello.
1: Steven in Calgary. Hello. Doug in Scotland. Hello. And Bill in a minivan in Arizona. Howdy. (laughs) Podcasting on the road in in true CRM archaeologist fashion. Although you're not going to a job, you're going to a, a Mariners game. So,
3: yeah, I'm, go- I'm going to spring training, so it's not really. Right. It's not as, as grinding as actual work, but it's still kind of work. It's, <laughs> it's hard work to have this much fun.
1: Nice, nice. All right. Well, our entire show today is going to be dedicated to what we talked about for the last 10 minutes of episode 80. And um, that is the survey of, uh, let's see, what do we call it here? Survey of field archaeologists and cultural resource managers. And that was conducted by Charlie Poliska. Um, I believe, don't. Uh, don't quote me on this, but I believe that he did this as part of a as part of a uh, um, master's degree program that he might be in. Um, I, I think I'd heard that. So this survey, uh, if you don't know what we're talking about, check out the show notes. If you're um, on most podcast players, you can tap on the graphic uh, for the uh, show, and it'll take you over to the show notes, or they're just displayed there. It Depends on how you're how you're listening to this, but. We're going to start this off just talking about the data a little bit. We had a chance to look at the raw data as well. And one of the things that I wanted to start off with before we got into specifics was just reading and understanding this table. Okay. Um, And what I mean by that is if you go all the way to the very end, there's an easy way to understand um, what I mean by just understanding the data. And that's at the uh, section called wages and income by gender. So to me, this isn't you know it's good data to have, but the graph is not doesn't really uh, make much sense to me. It, does, it doesn't. It's not very helpful the way it's presented, only because you're just comparing straight up wages by gender and that's it. Position isn't being taken into account. To me, you have to compare wages and gender uh, for field techs, for crew chiefs, for project managers, for principal investigators, for company owners. Okay, if you just throw everybody into the mix, then I think the data gets a little clouded, um, and it gets a a little hard to um, to really tease that out and it doesn't seem to make any sense i mean i don't i'm looking here i think the uh the average the the high end here for both men and women is about 18 to 24 dollars per hour and honestly i think that's a little a little disingenuous because uh a lot of people just simply don't make that unless most of the people on the west coast answered that question and nobody in the east coast did (laughs) but uh and i'm willing to bet more field techs answered this too uh, actually I don't remember seeing that graph if there's a graph of who answered this by um, uh, by job I don't know if you guys remember seeing that or not I'm looking up through here
3: there was a table that showed uh, the amount of people what their position was of the folks that answered and we had 32% field tech 16% crew chief 13% field director and then only 6% uh, PI so okay that that kind of tells you it's it's like you know about what, 30% mid-level manager people, and then 30% um, field techs.
1: Mm-hmm. Which, that makes, that makes sense. I'm actually surprised there isn't more field techs, um, but you'd think they'd be the, the higher end of the scale there, since there's more of them. Yeah, I see the, the current position graph here. This is kind of spread out, which is in- interesting. Um,
2: hey, quick question, oh, guys. Yeah, go ahead. Did, did all you guys participate in this? I did. Because I did. I did. yeah. yeah.
3: I did too. Sweet.
1: Yeah, Steven and Doug, did you guys fill out the survey? Uh, no. Yes. No. Yeah. Okay. Oh, Steven. Oh.
4: I I don't I don't remember that being a call for it, but you know, hey.
1: Yeah, I think I remember seeing it on I want to say Archaeofield Tech's Facebook group and on the North American Archaeological Tech Forum Facebook group, and that's the only places I saw it, I think. Um, and it was up for a little while and it was commented on, so I, I think it started stayed at the top. Um. Uh, either way, either way, uh, getting that much participation, 400 and what was it, 479 people, I believe, um, participated in the survey, which is uh, which a is great. a lot.
2: That's a great response.
3: Yeah. yeah. For an informal survey, that's like, I think I looked at it based on maybe some of Doug's calculations, that was like 4% of all the archaeologists if you, if you go with the conservative estimate of 11,000 archaeologists in, in mm-hmm. uh, North America or United States,
1: mm-hmm. that was
3: like 4% through a Facebook poll.
1: Right. And you know, uh, one thing I would caution too, as far as looking at this data... If you look in his introduction section, on the second paragraph, it says, um, "Here's what I was talking about earlier. It says the survey was conducted from May through September 2015, uh, posted in multiple Facebook groups, individual Facebook pages, and on Arcfieldwork.com." And uh, I, if I remember right, from taking the survey, there was really, there was really no way to um, uniquely identify somebody. So, not that anybody loves taking surveys, but there's no way to prove that somebody didn't go and take it ten times, you know, and and give different answers every time. Not that anybody would really do that, but just to point out that there didn't seem a way to control for that. So, it's it's something you have to consider when you have a survey like this. But with 479 responses, I'm willing to bet that on the average, the responses are probably you know accurate and and genuine.
4: What was this? Uh, what platform was this survey done on? Since I'm the one who didn't take it, I can ask these questions. <laughs>
1: You know, I don't remember, honestly, Um, when we took it. I don't remember. It was probably something like SurveyMonkey or something like that, but I I really don't remember.
4: Yeah, because SurveyMonkey actually does control for um, multiple entries from the same computer.
1: From the same computer, yeah. But if you've just got the link to the survey, you can click into it from a different computer and then just take the survey if it's not asking for your data.
4: Well, true, but, you know, sending out a link to multiple fora isn't really going to change that right so like, if i should i send you one link on on via one email list and you want to click in on you know from five different computers you can do that regardless but mm-hmm. you know sending it out to five different lists email lists um you know if you're only using one computer it would still keep you from you know basically you get one entry right so you know i mean yeah there's always the you know people can cheat if they really really wanted to but they would have to get multiple computers going
2: yeah and who's got time for
5: that? <laughs> yeah so to to comment on the the gender and pay like that, um probably the bigger correlation is not going to be um position well, that is the cor- that's part of it it's the effect, but you're looking at age. so um we the guy who created it was willing to share the data with us, and so I quickly flipped through the things. And what you'll find is actually pay is pretty much even um, across the field until you hit. Um, so, like, if you do it by age cohort mm-hmm. and experience cohort, it's all pretty much the same. It's just the problem is there's more women younger who tend to get the younger you are tend to get paid less. Hmm. Um, so that's that's showing that that issue right there is basically. So you know, like the top. The top ones like a guy, male, 50s, 30 plus an hour, male, 60s, 30 plus hour, and it goes like that. But um, the women are also who are in their 40s and 50s and 60s who are also getting paid at that level as well. It's just that the uh, response was much younger for, there's more women who are younger responding than there are older, and that correlates to pay, that correlates to position, that correlates to experience.
1: So, are you saying the pay for men and women wasn't as, uh, um, as say, as different as it as it looks like on the chart here? Yeah, because I mean, in some of these levels, it's it's kind of even, but in some of them, he's got the, you know, the, the bars are not not exactly lined up.
5: Yeah, it's it, for the most part, um, it it correlates more to to age than anything else.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and that makes sense because age. Age often correlates to position as well. You know, I mean, just just in a rough, rough sense, you know, if you're younger, you're probably uh, lower on the totem pole. And if you're older and you've progressed through your career, you're probably higher on the totem pole. Obviously not always the case, but, you know, a general rule to follow in most industries, I would say.
3: The other thing I noticed was um, the education correlation. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it did look like in general, and he even says it, that a graduate degree does um, equal a higher wage. However, and I don't know if this is just the number of individuals who responded, it didn't seem like a PhD. really gave you that much more money than just having a master's. So all the folks, I guess, out there that's listening to this that are retooling by going to get a master's, stop there. (laughs) (laughs) Do not continue on.
2: (laughs) That's what I like to say,
3: too.
1: Says the guy oh, in a PhD no program.
3: <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm I'm like that soldier that likes a lot of extra badges. <laughs>
1: <laughs> nice, nice. That's a pretty expensive badge to collect. <laughs> hey,
3: you know, just like Pokemon cards, collect them all.
1: There, there, you go, there you go. Yeah, I sometimes feel like people do that too. They they like they like just not that you're doing this, Bill, but I feel like some people um, do just like to collect degrees and and be in school. I mean, I like to be in school. Don't get me wrong. And if if it were free, I'd probably, you know, work for 10 years, go back to school, work for 10 years, go back to school, just have a cycle like that. It would be really nice to to be able to do something like that. It, it, not even for archaeology, you know, for the, you know, necessarily, just to, just to go back and, and learn something else.
3: Yeah, like go back to high school, senior year, in your case, just go
1: way
3: back. Just <laughs> work 10 years, be in high school again.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Let's do it. Uh, let's see. Let's see. Anything else you guys uh, notice that you want to bring up?
3: So as far as um, degrees go, it looked like, you know, I'm trying to say here, 74% or so had a college degree or a graduate degree. There was a lot of people who had associate uh, degrees, but he came to the conclusion that we're underpaid for our education, and I don't know what the, it would be nice to do a correlation between years of experience in education, Mm -hmm. because... It would be interesting to see if, yeah, you know, entry level right out of school with your master's or PhD, you're lower on the pay scale, but after you've been there for 10 years, uh, you know, and you have your graduate degree, does that actually, uh, does the graduate degree compensate?
6: Mm -hmm.
3: And then it would also be interesting to see the folks who are paid the most. It looked like, according to the table, the people who were paid the most had a graduate degree or PhD. So there weren't very many responses at the very top end of that pay scale, above 80,000 or whatever. Right. Except, I don't think any of those folks didn't have a graduate degree. Mm-hmm. So, as far as you know, education and um, experience, I think that you don't really survive very long if you don't have a graduate degree.
1: Yeah, that's probably true. I, I think that's a good. Uh, I think that's a good analysis of those data because. Uh, um, it, it, part of the problem is probably depends on where you work too. I mean, if it's really. If it's really, really difficult work, like just backbreaking work all the time as a field tech, like, for example, I think the East Coast is way worse than the West Coast for that because you're always shovel testing, you know, doing something like that. I mean, how long could you really do that and stay in good physical condition? You know what I mean? You almost have to move up just to get out of the field a little bit so you can uh, not destroy your body.
3: Yeah, you're right about that. I I saw the regional distribution. It did seem like there was a lot of people from the southeast Mm -hmm. and the southwest uh, I'd like to look at that again real fast. But um, I know that in the Southwest specifically, you know, you you basically have to have a graduate degree if you want to survive. However, there are so, so many people that I've worked with before that have a lot of experience and they have maybe no degree, just a high school diploma, or they're a backhoe driver that are mm-hmm. excellent at doing archaeology. And uh, they've been around for decades.
1: Yeah, there's definitely the, the highest individual percentage was um... – for what he called Central, which looked like, uh, you know, the centered around the Illinois, Kentucky, Tennessee area there. Uh, and that was, that was uh, 152 people in the survey, 31.9%.
3: Which is so interesting because a few years ago when we did that uh, blogging archaeology session at the SAA, I did an analysis of LinkedIn profiles and how many individuals were from what part of the country. And uh, some of those central states had almost no individuals that were on LinkedIn.
6: Hmm.
3: And so it was like people in California and New York, well, population-wise, that you know, there's no way to account for that. But they were most uh, represented on LinkedIn. Whereas people in the Midwest, there was almost no LinkedIn profiles. Kansas, Nebraska, mm-hmm. you know, maybe two or three for the entire state. But according mm-hmm. to this survey, there were a lot of individuals working there. So I. I came to the conclusion maybe that the Midwest and the Plains were kind of like voids of archaeologists and maybe that was a place where we might want to go to find work, you know, because there's less competition. But Mm -hmm. based on the survey, there's actually plenty
4: of people there. Yeah. Well, and there generally are, but in the uh, flyover states, I think there's a lot of like, you know, just don't care about LinkedIn. Mm Hmm. Um, (laughs) Uh, Well, I mean, it's not regarded as a serious anything it's um you know at best something that you use to keep track of people you used to work with um but i don't know anybody who, who really uses that as far as like finding a job or networking to get a job or anything like that there's a lot of yeah um i don't know linkedin it does not seem to be that big of a deal in in certain places at least in my experience you know between uh wisconsin and like working in the upper midwest and uh no Alberta, it's you know everybody's on LinkedIn, but mm-hmm. nobody, cares and nobody really and everybody checks in.
1: Well, you know, I think I think you're right, Stephen. It depends on what you use LinkedIn for and who you are. Uh, if you're a if you're a field tech or something like that, field techs don't seem like they're using LinkedIn to get jobs. You're right. Um, people aren't really posting jobs on LinkedIn, and and I don't know if uh, I mean I'll tell people right now as a field tech. One way you could use LinkedIn is to find their company page, and the company page will link to everybody that is in their company that's on LinkedIn, um, which, which if you're looking at it and, and they've got, it's a larger company and they've got a number of people on there, you can at least see if maybe there's anybody, you know, that works for that company and you can contact them privately and ask them about it and see what's going on before you apply. Um, so that'd be, that'd be one good way to do that. Cause you can't go to a company's website and see who works there unless it's a small company and they've got every single employee on there. Cause there's only five of them, but if it's a larger company, it's easier to do that. But and this isn't a discussion about LinkedIn, but I did want to say uh, for project managers, principal investigators, people doing uh, business development, LinkedIn is um, LinkedIn is a really good resource because if you connect with a lot of people in a lot of different fields, I mean, I've gone I've gone before when I needed GIS work, and I found a guy that I work with now um, pretty consistently. Where I just I searched my network first, and I said, "Who's got you know GIS listed on their skills?" And I have found a number of people. And a number of people that were independent JS consultants. And then it was able to look at some of the stuff they'd done on LinkedIn and narrow it down that way before I even contacting anybody. So um, and I've been contacted, I don't know, a handful of times enough to, to make a pretty significant amount of money um, and get some work by just having a LinkedIn page for my company. You know and having the good SEO or search engine optimization where they could search me and find out exactly what I did. And yeah, out here in Nevada, it's pretty invaluable because almost no Nevada companies have a LinkedIn page. <laughs> they might be there, might be some bigger companies like Swicka and stuff like that that have a LinkedIn page that work in Nevada, but straight Nevada companies, most of them don't have a LinkedIn page. So when I get some cell tower company back east, which I just had a contact on uh, a week ago. Uh, they found me because they searched Nevada archaeologist on LinkedIn and my company was the only one that came up. So, um, you know, it depends on what you use it for. You're right. Most field techs aren't going to use it, but again, it depends. Um, anyway, uh, like I said, this isn't a, a LinkedIn conversation, although we could have, it's, it's springtime and it's getting, it's getting time to have another, another job hunting podcast like we've done, um, in the past. But, one thing I wanted to ask you about, so uh, ask you guys about, is there's a there's a graph here called late wages. Let's see if you can find that one. Um, it's surprising to me that uh, so first off, forty five point nine percent of the respondents um, got paid on time uh, with per diem and paychecks and everything like that and never had any problems, but thirty one point six percent said they had a company late by a couple of days a time or two, usually the first paycheck or during other unique situations that were somewhat understandable, but nothing that stood out as all that unusual. Uh, to me, I mean anytime pay is late is unusual. I mean that's an unusual circumstance. I, I understand things happen, but um, and I came pretty close on some of my <laughs> some of my payroll last year, but I did everything I could to make sure that that payroll went out. I mean that was the First priority was payroll and per diem. Payroll and per diem. First priority every single time. And I know companies try to do that, but I'm just surprised at the high percentage of people that have been paid late. Have any of you guys, when you were, uh, when you were, you know, working as say field techs, were you ever paid late um, on per diem or a paycheck, which is which is even worse? Yeah. I mean, how did you deal with that?
3: Well, with the per, yep. With the per diem thing. I'd hate to just jump in like this. First, My first company that I worked uh, did cultural resources full-time before. They only paid us once a month.
6: Mm-hmm. So I
3: moved to Seattle, and then I had to wait, like, I don't know, man, six weeks or something like that before I got my first paycheck because we only got paid once a month. It was it was real eye-opening. Great for learning how to budget. Bad for trying to survive for a month and a half in the city of Seattle with, like, you know $500 or something like that. Um, Mm -hmm. But as far as the the, uh, per diem thing, sometimes I've found that that is the most sketchy situation. Even when I was the one who was in charge of, you know, catching, cashing the check and distributing that to individuals, I found that per diem sometimes was like completely overlooked by the people in charge or maybe the project had gotten moved forward by a whole bunch and nobody had nobody that was there to cut the check to get the per diem to the crew. So mm-hmm. it ends up being late in quotation marks, according to what they're accustomed to, because they're gonna have to wait till they get back to town to get the per diem. There was a, another situation where, you know, my favorite way of of giving out per diem is just a fistful of money. That's oh, yeah. like you know, the best thing to get that envelope full of cash. Well, there was a company I worked for where a woman got her envelope of cash, and then they came home early, and uh, she needed to give some back, and she basically mutinied and said she wasn't gonna give it back. Mm. and and rather than fire her or you know reprimand her or something like that, they just made a new policy that you only get your per diem when you come back to town after you've already spent money right so then that changed you know I guess the custom regarding per diem is different at so many different companies that it's hard to know when you're actually when it's late. However, I haven't ever been just straight cheated like I, it was interesting to see that some individuals put on there that they you know when it's said per diem, it made me assume that maybe they never even got their per diem which i don't know i mean can, can you do that? Isn't that that's against the law i thought right
1: well I, i'll tell you my first my very first project ever um it turns out it was uh, there was a class action lawsuit on it and uh, uh and i didn't know what was going on i was local so they weren't even giving me per diem and they were paying me ten dollars an hour again i was just happy to have a job in archaeology i didn't know any better but uh the guys that have been uh, the guys that have been working on there for like the last two months had not been paid per diem that entire time. Their hotel was getting direct billed, um, so they didn't have to pay their hotel, but they hadn't been paid per diem in two months, and they kept saying it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. And then somebody found out it was an Army Corps of Engineers project, and so they were supposed to be getting paid uh, wage determination, and they weren't. So um, I think probably I only worked on that project for like three weeks, and then it shut down for the winter. But three months later. I got a check for the difference between what they were paying me and the wage determination, and so did everybody else. But apparently, you can't, You can't. it has to be a separate lawsuit for the per diem. It wasn't a, the same thing. And I don't know. Some of those guys had thousands of dollars in per diem coming to them, and, and as far as I know, they never got it. So that was my very first experience in CRM. I don't know. Stephen, I cut you off uh, at the beginning of yeah. that.
4: Well, one, I'm, I'm, I'm surprised you stuck with it, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> after going through all that, yeah, uh, yeah. I think part of the problem is uh, per diem is one of those. It's it's not quite under the table money, but it's kind of under the table money. Mm-hmm. You, you know what I mean? And and like Bill was saying, like every everybody does it a little bit differently, and you know sometimes it actually gets dangerous in, in that the policy will shift halfway through, like like you were talking about where. You know, maybe it's okay. Uh, you don't need receipts, and here's a cash up front, and then it turns into more of a reimbursement sort of thing, and you need receipts. But they don't tell you that until after you're, you know, getting out of the field or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you know, it's one of those things that uh, it's you know, even if it's a reputable or seemingly reputable company, you really need to get keep track of what you're owed. Um. Keep track of what your hours are, keep track of, you know, what the deal is for per diem. And if you can, at the beginning, you know, get it in writing, mm-hmm. then, you know, what they expect of you and then keep receipts anyway, you know, yeah. just in case. Um, and, you know, I, I, I worked on one project uh, back in the 20th century. Um, and uh, yeah, it was like, we were, Per diem, because it wasn't something where it was like you had documented your number of hours or anything like that, it was just like, well, you know, here's the per diem at the end of the week. And then it was every other week. And then it was, it was just kind of inconsistent. And I mean, there are a lot of rumors of why this was, you know, like the boss is sitting on the money and has got an interest bearing account and doesn't <laughs> want to end it over. You know, I, which yeah. you know, in, in hindsight, is probably, you know, all bullshit, right? So yeah. Um, it's 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 more ma- probably a matter of like the person who had the cash couldn't make it out to the field that week, or um, you know maybe there were cash flow issues that they didn't want to talk about, or you know there are reason I, I don't want to say reasonable reasons for for having it, but there are understandable reasons for
6: for mm-hmm. uh,
4: per, di- per diem issues. But uh, yeah, we, we almost went on strike. It, it you know we, it actually came down to the, the the uh you know basically the last day and we're like okay we're gonna go on strike and he showed up with the money um and and so yeah it, it's i i think things are better now um but sometimes you know particularly is is a place where you have to be careful because it's pretty easy to get screwed down
1: yeah well We've got a lot more to say on this. There's some uh, some back chat going on here, but we're going to take a short break and uh, and come back and, and continue this discussion about pay. Every time we start talking about pay, we can talk the whole entire hour on it. It's crazy. All right. Back in a second.
7: All these things we make no apology are the study of archaeology. But we don't do dinosaurs. Did aliens build Stonehenge? Did the Easter Island statues walk? Did the Vikings colonize Midwest America? What does mainstream archaeology have to say about all of this? Listen to the Archaeological Fantasies podcast and learn about popular archaeological mysteries. Hoax or fact? Learn to tell the difference with Dr. Kenneth Fader and co-host
2: Sarah of the Archie Fantasies blog. Check out the show on iTunes and Stitcher Radio and at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash Fantasies. And get ready to think critically. Let's get back to the show.
7: Funny, beady blokes, you will see, are a staple of archaeology.
1: All right, we're back, and um, Sonia had some some comments on the pay and per diem stuff and the pay schedule thing. So, Sonia, go ahead.
2: Yeah, uh, just a few things on the definitely on the on the pay and per diem um, from the business perspective. Um, first of all. Uh, Per diem can be paid basically however the employer wants it to be paid. If it's promised to you, then then uh, you're supposed to get it. Uh, mm-hmm. Obviously, um, the the employer can pay it. Uh, they can pay you fifty dollars a day, or they can pay you forty seven dollars a day, or whatever the federal rate is. They can pay you less than forty seven dollars a day if the project is not subject to federal or state uh, per diem guidelines. Um, so that's something to keep in mind before, um, before you, you start getting um, litigious about things. Um, additionally, um, the, the employer can uh, require you to use um, uh, receipts, and uh, that's why I generally suggest if the, the employer wants you to do receipts, um, sometimes that's a company policy and sometimes that's a client policy. Um, my suggestion on that one is if you have it available, use a credit or debit card uh, to pay um, to pay for all of your per diem and incidentals, uh, your your food and incidental expenses. The reason I say that is um, some, you'll always lose a receipt um, no matter how focused you are on keeping them. Um, uh, uh, your your credit card company or your debit card uh, bank is actually going to keep records of all of those payments, and usually they also keep um, records of where you made those payments. So that's a good backup. Um, so that would that would help. Although not everybody has a credit card when they get out of college, not everybody has a debit card. It's but it is becoming more and more uh, popular. Um, in terms of getting uh, paid. Um, uh late there's a few things uh, to say about that first um that was actually quite common about 15 18 years ago when um like the delay in in pay was was common about 15 or 18 years ago when they first started doing um electronic transfers into your bank account it it mm-hmm. actually took that much time to set up those those electronic transfers nowadays it's maybe a couple days so there's really not much of a a good, justifiable reason why a company can't do an electronic payment if they're set up for that. And not all small businesses are. So that's also something to keep in mind. Um, and in terms of late payment, um, your, your payment could be processed um, via check, but getting the, your check from the corporate office out to, um, out to the middle of nowhere, uh, Nevada, <laughs> can, can, can take a day. So sometimes that's, a, that's something to consider as well. Um, Also, on the per diem thing, and I know I'm kind of jumping all over, I have a list of things that I kind of made a note of, on the per diem thing, for federal clients in particular, you get half a day per diem on your first and last days of your field stint, and that's federal policy. Um so uh, they're not jipping you your company's not necessarily jipping you per diem on purpose they're doing that because uh the federal government actually has a policy on that it's called a travel per diem or travel days even if your travel's only 3 hours they don't consider um and I, and I'm not speaking for the feds here but in general they consider all 8 or 10 hours that you work to be a travel day which means you only get half day per diem um, and also, your per diem can be um, stepped based on um, the time, the, the amount of time that you work during the day. So uh, this is specifically on federal pol- uh, on federal pot projects, although it can apply to state and private companies as well, uh, depending on what your company policy is and what this, the contract reads. Mm-hmm. So if you work. Uh, Two to four hours, you get, uh, or if you get work up to like two hours, you get 25% of your per diem. If you work four hours, you get 50% of your per diem. 75 and 100, if you work anything more than 100%, you just get 100% of your per diem for that day. So just a whole bunch of things on the business end to keep in mind when it comes to per diem schedule and, and, uh, and, and pay schedule. Pay, I have less tolerance for late payments. Um, so, uh, there can always be hiccups in, in the process, but, um, usually most companies are apologetic and will try to get you paid, uh, as quickly as possible. Cause we want to keep our, our employees happy. So, <laughs> yeah, and
1: anyway. I'd be, I'd be willing to bet that, that it, there's very few, very, very few, almost, almost not even worth talking about circumstances where some employer is keeping, keeping pay or per diem back for some nefarious reason, I'm willing to bet it's always because they simply don't have the money or, Mm -hmm. um, because, uh, of some logistical error, because if they're small companies, it's probably, they just simply don't have the money. There's a gap between when they're getting paid by the client, especially on a big project and when they can pay you. And in the meantime, they're, they're putting a second mortgage on their house. They're selling a car, they're doing something so they can get out their payroll. And if it's a larger company, then it's just not in their best interest to do something nefarious. You know what I mean? We like to think that the corporations are doing evil things, but that really isn't isn't good for them, <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> that's it, the case.
2: It's, it's, sometimes it's not even the corporation. Sometimes it's an individual. Yeah, um, that you know, made a I, mistake. heard rumors on a project that I worked on, gosh, like 15, 18 years ago, where um, the, uh, the, 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 the PI or the principal investigator who was responsible for uh, divvying up the, the cash per diem May have been sitting on some of the per diem in his bank account because he could get interest on it, mm-hmm. even if it's just for a couple of days. If you're talking ten grand or more for you know forty or fifty people working on a project, that's a lot of money. Right. So you know it's just rumors. There's there there's no you know it, it, it's a it's common. It's a common. A thing that could happen so it's not always the company sometimes it could be an individual sometimes it sometimes it could be the contract right i mean things to consider
1: okay well we're gonna uh take a break real quick for this uh discussion and bring in charlie um so let's take a short 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 break uh i'll just put up a put up a quick little thing actually you know what i'm gonna put up the uh the gpr thing because i forgot to mention that at the beginning we're still um Still got a 10% discount available for APN listeners on uh, Ground Penetrating Radar webinar. A really fantastic uh, bit of training from uh, somebody who's a friend of the podcast, uh, Mr. Dan Bigman over in the southeast. And you can do this from anywhere in the world. So you get 10% off if you sign up um, on their APN page. So take a listen to this. And when we come back, we'll bring on Charlie and ask him about uh, his motivations for the survey and what he learned from it. I'm here with Dan Bigman of Bigman Geophysical with an awesome special offer for APN listeners. Dan, what have you got for us?
0: Well, uh, for the past year, I've been everywhere I've went, people have requested training on ground penetrating radar, and they've all voiced concerns that there's nowhere to get accessible quality training uh, for a really reasonable price. So what pigment geophysical is doing is we're going to put on a three-part webinar series on gpr basics ground penetrating radar basics that's going to take place mondays april 18th april 25th and may 2nd 2016. in this course we're going to break it into three parts part one is going to go over basic concepts and theory of ground penetrating radar part two is going to talk about processing data visualizing data and GPR data interpretation. And then part three is going to be all about case studies and applications of ground penetrating radar to uh, several different industries, including archaeology. And how long does each class period last? So each class period is going to have a live section on Monday uh, for each of those Mondays is going to be about an hour and 15 to an hour and a half of, of class time. And then uh, there's going to be additional time for question and answers throughout each course. What we're also going to do is do an unlimited replay for each topic for each week from Wednesday to Sunday. So if you miss it, or you want to see it again, which we hope you do, then you'll be able to log into a special website and replay uh, the webinar. And how much is this going to cost us? So the regular price of this webinar is $2.99. And what we're going to do for APN listeners as a special deal is give a 25% discount for the first seven days that we're running registration. So that's going to go from March 7th, till March 14th at 8 p.m. Eastern time for that 25% discount. After that, we're still going to give APN listeners uh, a discount that's uh, you know, just for them. It's going to be 10%. But if you really want to uh, get in this for relatively inexpensive, then the 25% off is going to give you a rate of 225 for the course. So where can people go to sign up for this class? You just have to pop over to bigmangeophysical.com forward slash APN to get the special rate. That's dot com forward slash APN. And there they can sign up and go to a secure website to enter all their information and get that 25% off.
1: So whether you're a seasoned archeologist or just getting started, this course will really be an asset for everyone. Head over to geophysical.com forward slash APN, or you can click through from the APN website at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com to get your 25% off today. Okay, we're back, and after some, uh, some of the usual Skype uh, difficulties, which after three and a half years of podcasting and uh, hundreds of shows um, over several podcasts... We've had Skype issues almost every single time, so <laughs> we're not no stranger to computer crashes and Skype issues, but we finally got Charlie on. Um, so, Charlie Poliska, why don't you tell us um, just a little bit about yourself and what your motivations were for putting this uh, survey together?
7: Well, I've been doing CRM archaeology for 10 years, uh, and I've been going back to graduate school, and almost every project I've been on, you know, you sit around either behind the hotel, at the campfire, at the pub, wherever. And you hear all these stories and you hear about how people have different issues with flight in the field. Um, uh, but they're always allegorical, always, you know, through grapevine. And I've tried to see what some actual numbers are out there and they're very, very hard to come by.
1: Mm-hmm.
7: Doug's, uh, Publication a couple of years ago, or, or uh,
1: blog post, yeah,
7: blog post a couple of years ago about the how many numbers there are just in U.S. archaeologists it, it is a perfect example, and it's the only real set of numbers I could come by that made sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and the rest of the numbers, I mean, the numbers that the government provides through the Bureau of Labor Statistics and, and different numbers out there sure don't seem to mesh with what I'm hearing and seeing in the field Mm -hmm. and so I figured I've got questions I might as well find answers so that's how I came up with well I might as well do the survey and I was speaking to a few colleagues about what they would want to hear as well so that's where a lot of the questions came from is uh, either stuff that the colleagues had asked or my own questions about the field.
1: Okay, well, and you also asked uh, a lot of questions in your survey that, that like nobody's asked government or otherwise. You know, like we were just talking about uh, um, pay and per diem stuff, and and not like numbers for pay and per diem, but like one of the specific things we were talking about was you know how often have you been paid late or not at all, uh, you know mm-hmm. things like that. And those are questions that that I don't know anyone's answered in recent memory. Um, you know, maybe a long time ago, but definitely not something that's been that, that's recent and pertinent to. Uh, to today, so um, so I, I think we're going to just uh, include you in um, our, our continuing discussion here about some of the other uh, some of the other things we've noticed in the survey and uh, and things like that. Doug's mentioning something in the back here. Doug, go ahead.
5: Yeah, um, just like to comment on Charlie's thing about the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Um, they are horrendously bad, and there's a couple of reasons for that. One is. Those statistics are gathered by sampling a survey of companies, and those companies are ones that sort of pay in for, you know, um, basically it's taken from state records of companies that may pay for uh, staff to get laid off. And so it samples, but it misses anyone who's self-employed, and it tends to miss um, small companies. And most CRM companies... Are quite small. Um, I'm sure the big ones, you know, they're part of like environmental or engineering firms, they get counted. But for the most part, it misses a lot of small companies. And so it says something like there's 7,000 archaeologists and anthropologists. And if anyone knows, the American Anthropology Association has 10,000 members and SAA has 7,000. So you can do the math right there and realize the, the numbers are off. But basically, the way they gather data, because it's so small and archaeology is such a small, CRM such a small field that it covers, we're missed out by the sampling. So there's a huge sampling error. And so when it says, you know, the average archaeologist makes 60 or 80,000 or something like that, that's because they've managed to, you know, sample some universities and some very large companies that will have, you know, someone who they paid as a consultant to make sure that they have to do the least amount of crm as possible and so the numbers don't match up with what most people find in the field which is pay that's not that much maybe double minimum wage if we're lucky
3: i i think that's what this survey actually captures that a huge amount of us are making you know uh in the middle wages um Trying to look at my numbers right here. Uh, I can't remember. Maybe Charlie can tell us. But it seemed like most of us made forty thousand, thirty to forty thousand a year, whereas the Bureau of Labor says we're supposed to make like fifty-four thousand a year.
6: Mm-hmm.
7: Yeah, and the, and the graph I was really looking at from uh, BLS was where it compared earning and unemployment rates by educational attainment. So as almost all of us have at least a bachelor's degree, if not a master's degree, upwards of a PhD, the fact that the median earnings, you know, for a bachelor's degree comes out to a little over fifty-seven thousand dollars a year. And the vast majority of us are making under that, even if you have a master's degree. So
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um Charlie, I want to ask you, what are some of the I, – I, you're in a graduate program right now. I am. And you're using some of this – you're using this survey um, for some of the stuff you're doing there?
7: No. Uh, oh. This was just completely independent.
1: Oh, nice. Nice. Okay. Well, I'm wondering um, what are some of the other – you know, we've talked about some of the big stuff we've seen out of the survey that that were important to us. What are some of the, the bigger points or lessons that you learned from the survey that maybe – uh, maybe you weren't expecting uh, or something like that or, or that kind of took you by surprise?
7: I guess one of the things that kind of took me by surprise was that there isn't that big of a wage difference between... I mean, if you look at the overlapping bell curves uh, uh, towards the bottom of the survey where it's adjusted annual gross income by education, the, the overlapping bell curves aren't overlapping by that much when it comes to comparing a master's degree, a bachelor's degree, and even a PhD. There just isn't that much, and the PhD bumps it up a bit, but uh, I thought there'd be a definite change there, and there just doesn't seem to be one, which begs the question uh, to some, is it really worth going and getting that master's degree with the exception of, okay, then you're qualified by... State and federal standards of leading a project, but if you, if you're a field tech already able to hold year year-round employment either in in public service or if you can if you have well enough established contacts
6: mm-hmm.
7: nationwide and you can bounce from the Midwest to the Southwest to the Great Basin or wherever, do you really need to go and drop that? Forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars on a graduate degree. I don't know. That's up for everyone to decide themselves.
1: Well, I, you know, I'll, I have a comment on that because I've talked about this before on on other shows and and uh, other episodes of this podcast. And uh, you know, it, it hurts to say sometimes, but to me, um, CRM archaeology in particular is uh, is really more about. You know are you happy with what you're doing not necessarily <laughs> are you happy with how much you're getting paid or how much it costs to get you there um and that's a pretty crappy thing to have to say um honestly because i mean we feel like just we should get paid more because we have a master's degree or a PhD. We feel like that's the case. But if that's not the case in our field, but that master's degree, um, like to take that as an example, puts you in a different position, um, you know, mentally, um, career wise in a place where you're more happy, like maybe you can do more research, maybe you like leading people and and leading projects. And you can't do that without a master's degree in a lot of places. Um, Then that that says a lot to me almost more so than than pay does. I mean, if you're if you're buried in student loans for the rest of your life, then I guess yeah, that's that's a huge a huge deal. But uh, if if you can manage to get a partially funded program, or or you're in a state school and it's not that expensive, or and you can get it paid off, and then your your quality of life is improved dramatically by having that advanced degree, then then I say go for it. Still, and and don't concern yourself with the fact that yeah, you're not going to get paid. $100,000 a year, you know, you're, you're, you're going to get paid only a little more. And and I think that's the biggest problem with some of the um, people in this field, especially field technicians, is they think, oh, I'm going to get a master's degree because the world says I'll get paid more money. But it just doesn't work that way in our field. You know, you, you got to look at different motivations to me. So,
7: yeah,
1: I mean, why why are you getting a master's degree, Charlie? Um, I'm
7: getting a master's degree mainly because I wanted to get a better understanding of the laws and why exactly we're doing this. Mm -hmm. I thought the uh, cultural resource management master's degree at St. Cloud state university where I'm going really uh, hit hard on that. Mm -hmm. And then the other reason uh, was in hopes to get a permanent position that I could really make a career out of this, even though, you know, yeah, in my own mind, i had been doing this as my career, and I considered myself an archaeologist. And while you know, it kind of goes back into some of the conversations you guys had last ep- episode about what's a professional archaeologist and what's not a professional archaeologist. And I think a lot of that also has to do with respect, because what whether there's a difference between a real archaeologist or a whatever you want to call anybody who doesn't have a a graduate degree whether it's an avocational archaeologist a uh, amateur archaeologist whatever you want to call field techs and you know true chiefs that don't have a degree there's definitely a layer of respect that or a separation of respect where um, someone without a master's degree usually doesn't get a chance to help author any kind, any parts of a report they don't Really get a chance to show their chops at writing or any other se- even semi-professional work, you know. Occasionally, you might have the exceptions, but for the most part, the respect out there for uh, many people is contingent upon kind of the degree. Mm-hmm. So,
1: well, this tells me you're you're going to get your master's degree for the right reason because it sounds like. Whatever your definition of quality of life is, it sounds like you're trying to improve your quality of life, and and quite honestly, something people don't really factor in sometimes is your your hourly wage or your even your annual um, salary might might be a little bit higher with a master's degree versus having a. Uh, a Uh, just a a bachelor's degree but that being said um, if you've got a master's degree and you're working somewhere as say a project manager or a field director or something like that not field director I guess someplace where you're staying in more than you're going out you're going to make less money that year because you're going to make less per diem you know, if you're, if you're taking a position where you're staying in the office more and you're getting more security and you're, you know, you're full-time employed, you're probably making way less money because of that per diem. I mean, per diem for some people, depending on where you work can be, you know, twenty thirty thousand $30,000 a year, untaxable. So, I mean, that's a, that's a pretty huge bump. And if you take that away and you only increase your salary by five ten thousand $10,000 a year, you're you're actually losing money. So if if money is the motivation for people, then you're actually better off staying a field tech and working somewhere with high per diem that where they don't direct build a hotel, and then you can make your own choices. But um,
6: yeah.
1: and you know that uh, unless anybody has a, a comment on that, that leads me into uh, another co- uh, question on your on your table here. Um, let me go back and find it. It was about lodging, and I, you know, I I started on the in the East Coast and down in the Southeast where I didn't know any better. They were direct billing the hotel and they were often putting two of us in a hotel room, whether it was, um, South Carolina, North Carolina, I worked in Florida as well. And I didn't know any better. I thought that's, that's the way it goes. Um, and then I came out West and found out it's very different out here. And a lot of the companies out here will just give you, um, they'll either still direct bill the hotel, but it's single occupancy hotel rooms and you just don't see double occupancy that much on the West coast. And then it's also, um, A number of people will just give you straight per diem and you find your own place to live. But the respondents to the survey, it was overwhelming that you got placed in a hotel by a company. I mean, it's 50, 97% almost or something like that of respondents said things like that. Um, And and then I I have a slight... (laughs) I have a slight objection to the way you worded part of the part of the lodging questions. Was they make us find our own accommodations? To me, it's they allow us to find our own accommodations. Um, I I prefer to find my own accommodations because I'm 40 years old and I don't want somebody in a hotel, in an office somewhere with different motivations for where I'm going to live deciding where I'm going to spend the majority of my time for the field season. You know what I mean? I'd rather find my own hotel. If I want to go cheap, I'll go cheap. If I want to live it up next session and get room service and and breakfast in bed, then that's what I'm going to do. But it's my choice, you know, and I'm really surprised that the numbers were so low on, on the people that have experienced that and, and had to do that. So I mean, I know you work in the Midwest, so it's it's a lot of direct billing of hotels out there. Um, I don't know. What do you think about that? Do you, do you prefer that system? Do you like having your hotel chosen for you? To because I, I see the benefit of it too, and not having to worry about it. You just told, hey, show up here, and it's all ready to go for you. Um, I don't know. Maybe you maybe you guys don't know any different. <laughs> well,
7: uh, I've only had one instance where a company has allowed me to choose my own hotel.
6: Mm-hmm. Um,
7: and and I was fine with it. I, I didn't have anything, you know, against it. But uh, the idea of having uh, a company just tell you, okay, show up at this hotel, you know, on Monday or Sunday night and we're good to go. And yeah. you know, you can roll out of bed, throw your field clothes on, you know, grab your pack, as long as you, you have things prepared the previous night and you can wake up half hour before your shift and bail.
3: I know why they don't allow people to choose their own hotel. When I first started doing uh, CRM, it was kind of up to the person who was in charge of the project. You know, you could let some people choose their own hotel, or you could just let them go with you and you would just call in for however many rooms. And most people would take that way out because then they were at the same hotel and everybody could get in the same car at the same time. Well, once I had someone take their money and then decide they didn't want to stay in a hotel; they were just going to save all their money. And every day I was waiting for this person to get there in the parking lot. Every single day, every night after work, this person was asking to take a shower in someone else's room or want mm-hmm. to, have, you know, maybe get sneak in and eat the free breakfast. All the while they were pocketing the money, right? So with them being late like that every day, that's why I just started um, booking rooms for everyone. And I, I mean, I know I booked rooms for people who were just like you, Chris, that would rather do it on their own. So that's why I always made sure to get the best deal that I possibly could in whatever town we were there. And so you know, I there was there's a couple of tricks to it, but I always try to stick to the holy trinity of free internet. I mean, it's not so bad anymore now because most of the mid-range hotels give you free internet but you know 10 years ago or so it was actually kind of hard to find free internet or at least internet in your room for every single room yeah but it was always all about internet microwave and mini fridge can I get every <laughs> single room and then if i can can i get it for the very cheapest rate possible so sometimes that was hotels.com Sometimes that was just calling them and telling them someone else across town was going to give me a better deal.
6: Mm-hmm.
3: And also because we're booking Monday through Thursday, that's the lowest occupancy time for any hotel. So sometimes if they don't have many bridges, then they'll go get them if you'll stay there for six months. Or yeah. if they don't have microwaves, they'll go and make a special thing. If they do but they're going to get 20 rooms booked or 15 rooms booked for the next three months during the off season. Uh, you know, that was something they're willing to do. So... Just really negotiating with people. So you're right. You don't want just some person, you know, not that the office folks are bad guys, but they're just seriously going to go online and, and Google, you know, cheapest hotel in the middle of nowhere. And then whatever that is, they're just going to book it, right? Mm-hmm. And it may not have internet. It may not be within cell signal range of some people's carriers. I mean, and all those things drive down morale. But having everybody together in the same spot and having them get in the same truck at the same time, to me was more important than letting someone have the freedom to choose room service.
1: So this, this is always a huge sticking point for me. And maybe I'm, I don't know, I've always wanted to be more independent or something like that. I don't really know, but I hear that all the time too, Bill, you're not unique in that. Um, especially from a project manager standpoint. I mean, I, I worked, um, the last, uh, the last project I, 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 managed here with dig tech was, um, about six months long. And we had to start out, we had, uh, five people and then we ended up with, uh, eight people total and, or actually nine, I think. And, uh, it's just, um, they were living actually all over town and partly because, uh, the company that we were all getting our lodging through, uh, had, they had these, uh, fully furnished apartment complexes. They were, they were actually spaced all over town. Um, some of them were in the same complex I was in, but others were uh, else, elsewhere. And we never had to wait for them. I mean, our start time was was whatever time it was, and everybody was always there on time, ready to go. And I feel like if you hire professionals, you hire adults, you hire people that you say, Listen, I'm giving you the responsibility to do this. Um, you know, your your work time starts at whatever time it starts at. If it's zero, six hundred in the morning, it starts at six o'clock six AM, you be there at six AM ready to go, and there's not a lot of leeway in that. And if you've got problems with people showing up to work on time well you know those people aren't coming back you know as far as i'm concerned they're not they're just they're not professionals they're not taking their job seriously if they're going to show up either uh half hungover or you know sure once is okay but every time is not or they're going to be late every time to the to the start of the work day well that's it it's not like it's like any other job you're not going to get any any relief from from working at uh you know ex-corporation you're not going to get any relief here either this is a professional job you need to take it professionally and then so that being said i like to treat people like adults because i want to be treated like an adult if i work for somebody else i want to find my own lodging i want to be given my per diem make my own choices and have um you know and have that have that done for me so i don't know bill you said you've been burned before and like the well like the per diem questions yeah go ahead
3: that's the thing I used to I used to treat people like adults before but then I realized that it was a lot easier to still treat them like adults by listening to their input of what they need and, and what they'd like and then try to use the whole group to collectively bargain for a better deal you know mm-hmm. so I mean people like if I say that we're gonna stay at whatever um, hotel and somebody's like oh man that place is horrible there's all this broken glass in the parking lot like trucks get broken in like regularly in that place you know <laughs> then I'm definitely gonna be like oh man but if somebody's like oh I really don't like the free omelets in the morning at that place it's kind of like oh I'm sorry uh, yeah you know we're, we're still gonna stay there but if somebody's like you know I heard Chris Webster likes you know to be independent and I want to be like that too and I'm gonna do I'll go get my own hotel room and everything else I'm just gonna say Yeah, sorry. All nine of
6: us decided we're not like Chris. (laughs) We're
1: (laughs) we're followers, and uh, yeah, we're all going to stay here. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, it's... (laughs) Well,
3: wait until until you get burned, and four people are like in a fistfight, and they go to jail, and they don't make it there. And you're like, well, they're not coming back. Well, how are you going to finish that day's work, man? You need them to help you. Like, we're all in the whole thing together, right? So they can't be canned like they're on the spot because they were, you know, an hour late.
1: Well, because in most cases there's 2,000 field techs sitting right behind him, ready to take that job.
3: Oh come on, man!
1: You know that's true.
3: Crazy. Yeah, in the middle of nowhere, you're just gonna <laughs> walk over to that pile of field techs and dust a couple off and put them. In- <laughs> oh, <that's not> <laughs> works. You're out there. You brought these guys all the way out there. Like now you're stuck with them. Chris, Chris keeps a couple.
4: Of, Chris keeps a couple of field techs in his trunk just in yeah. case.
1: <laughs> no, no, no Stephen. They're they're in an action packer in the back of my truck. They're good to go. Yeah, they got supplies. (laughs) Well, and I understand that I had actually a... I really had to trust my crew on that last project because we needed a a gate pass to get on that base. That took two months to get. So if I actually did fire somebody, and I think they all knew this, (laughs) but if I actually did fire somebody, it would take two months to replace them. And once we got up to less than two months to the end of the project, because it was a pretty hard date, that was the end of the project. I mean, if people were really thinking about it, they'd realize that they were kind of unfireable because you know <laughs> they were they were irre- they were literally irreplaceable at that point but i that's the first time i've ever experienced that on a project in in 11 years of doing this so um in most cases it might take a couple of days but you can usually get somebody else in there and i wouldn't it would have to be pretty severe for me to fire somebody mid-session anyway i'd probably just know that i'm going to fire them by the end of the session and then start planning to get somebody at the beginning of the following session just not just not ask them back
3: yeah well i mean i bet you, you probably gave them internet mini fridge and microwave or free breakfast mini fridge and uh microwave, huh? That's why they didn't act up. Even though they, <laughs> they could've been like, yeah, I'm just gonna take the next four weeks off. I'm gonna take all my vacation and all my sick time this next, you know. And then if I come back after that, you know, that'd be cool, but otherwise I'm done for this last two months. Like."
1: Well, again... You, do do
3: that? you gave them mini fridges.
1: No, I they didn't. I g- No, I didn't. I gave them I gave them full per diem and they could live wherever they want. And check this out too. So they had two months of unfireability for the most part, right? Because it would really hurt me if I let them go. My company policy is also unlimited vacation, unlimited sick time, anytime you want to take it. If you just call me up in the morning say, listen, I'm not coming into work today. I don't feel like I'm at 100%, stay home. You keep your per diem and I'll pay you, okay? And you, you treat people like adults like that and you treat them with respect and I never had anyone, anyone on that whole entire project abuse that policy. You know, I had people that were just like, listen, I, I've had enough of snakes and bombs for the for the day and I'm going to take uh, a couple extra days in my four day. And I was like, yeah, that's fine. Just just uh, come on back when you're ready. So,
6: oh my God, Chris.
1: It worked. It totally worked. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it
3: worked, man, because people were for the first time treated like human beings.
1: That's like- what I'm talking about. <laughs>
3: <laughs> i don't know dude i'm still for scheduling the hotel though all right but I'm, well i'm also for do it whenever you want vacation and sick too and yeah uh, for diem that's yeah i'm down with all that too but we're oh all meeting in the same park <laughs>
1: <laughs> sonia go ahead <laughs> having
2: cake and eating it too oh my gosh <laughs> How is this going to work? How are we uh, going no. to change CRM archaeology for the better <laughs> and have everyone else follow along? I, I just think that there's very few of us out there who really do care about our employees. I mean, mm-hmm. companies care about their employees. Um, but but really, really treating people well um, and really uh, basically a, a manager treating their employee the way that they would want to be treated, it's few and far between. Um, I mean, I have been told that, that CRM is, um, a pile of, let's call it crap <laughs> to keep this PG rated, um, you know, uh, by bosses before yeah. and, and it's, um, it's ridiculous. You know, I, 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 think it's, it's wonderful when you can actually find a firm that treats its employees well and wants to be fair
6: mm-hmm.
2: and does the best that they can do to make sure that you're treated fairly.
1: Yeah. Well, all right. So, again, another discussion we could have for the rest of the day. Um, but I'm going to throw this back to Charlie in our last couple of minutes here, and uh, and I just want to know, Charlie, um, are you planning on doing this again? Because uh, I I honestly think this is a survey that could be done um, every single year. You you left it open for I think May through September last year. I'm thinking maybe keep it open for like a month and put it up on a you know put it up on a website so people can go get to it like you did last time and. Um, I don't know. What do you think? Do you think it's something you'd want to do again or at least hand off to somebody else, um, hand off the rough, uh, outline and, and maybe change some things based on what you learned this year. Um, but do you, do you think you would do it again? Are you interested in that? Have you thought about it?
7: I, I've thought about it. Uh, one of the main things I would do is I would actually work with someone that has more computer skills. I mean, I'm,
6: mm-hmm.
7: I've got years of experience doing archeology span this is the first time I've delved into uh, statistics or logistics of this kind. And the way I phrased many of the questions really hung me up. I don't know if you guys have tried to do um, any of the more uh, complex work with the raw data, but
1: uh, <laughs> yeah,
7: my God, the I made the mistake of... I gave plenty of options for archaeologists to give their opinions on things. And what happens when you give 489 people the opportunity to give their opinion on something? <laughs> you get 489 different opinions. And so it's really hard to do statistics on all of those. Because you, if you do a cross tabs you get a whole long chart with everybody having one or two little things. So... Mm-hmm.
1: Um... Well, I don't. I don't know if you can see the the back chat we got going on here, Charlie. But uh, Doug Doug is <laughs> Doug is mentioning in the background that he does this sort of thing occasionally. Um, it's called uh, it's called every post on his blog. So um, I, I'd love to see. And I'm not trying to push you guys in this, but I'd love to see you guys work together on this and, and get another survey out, clean up the questions a little bit. You know, like you're saying, you learned a lot of lessons putting something together like this, and. And honestly, I I applaud you for even taking it on. I mean, it's a massive survey. It wasn't like five questions. It's a lot of questions. And if you notice, I don't know if this had anything to do with it, but um, I think it's University of Wisconsin at La Crosse is peddling a survey right now that I just took last night. It took me about, honestly, 10, 15 minutes. And they had... I don't know. If if anybody sees that going around, RPA is peddling, and I think SAA is as well. Uh, And I've seen it on a a few other things. Um, It's... It's no, to be fair, it's, it's a, they used a different platform and it's a much more, uh, I guess construct, it's a better constructed survey, you know, and just the mechanics of it because they used an expensive platform that they have access to, but, uh, their questions aren't as good. Their questions aren't as pertinent to actual archaeologists, you know? I mean, I think they're they're, they're sending this out to a lot of academic archaeologists and things like that, just, just judging on the questions. And some of the questions honestly seem generic, like they pulled them out of a, um, hey, I want to make a survey about employment, um, you know, thing. Whereas your questions are way more pointed to our field and, and way more applicable and to give us some really good... Um, Information on on what's actually going on in our field. I, you just need to you know learn the lessons from this one and modify slightly and 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 put it back out there again. And I think uh, I think it'll be a really good thing to see again. So
7: indeed, uh, I just want to kind of counter Sonia's our uh, last comment a little bit.
6: Mm-hmm. Uh,
7: just I think overall CRM companies, at least a lot of the smaller ones they really do care about their employees. They, they really focus on them, but because CRM is such a, a price competitive field, mm-hmm. which I think there really needs to be a larger discussion at the, at the higher levels about uh, maybe it needs certification. Maybe it needs something where we can stop some of the price wars and, increase bids and and make things so that there's more money to spread around. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I mean, we all know that they want to try and take care of their employees, but there's just so little money for them to even balance their books at the start of each month, much less the end of the month.
1: Yep. You're totally right. Um, Well, I think, uh, I think we're going to end this podcast right here because we could go on all day. Um, But thanks, Charlie, for for doing this. And if you decide to do another one, maybe we could uh, talk about it, you know, right after you, um, you know, right after it gets put out. Um, I'd like to see, you know, see it out for a few weeks and then maybe bring you on and and, and talk about it if we do this again uh, to give a little more, um, see if we can get more participation in the survey, even though nearly 500 people was was kind of amazing. Um, I think... Uh, You know, the social media platforms that you put it on are constantly, constantly growing. I mean, I think, I think the Archeo Field Text Group has gained, will have gained probably five or 600 members by the time, you know, May comes around again. So, um, I mean, we're putting up new members every day. So, Anyway, um, that's it for this show. Check out the survey in the show notes, and if this comes around again, be sure to take it. Um, I like and, and look for that other one from the University of Wisconsin. It's it's out there somewhere. It's always good, even if I don't know, even if the survey is not that well put together. Like I don't, I don't really like the University of Wisconsin one. Like I said, it's a little too generic. But um, we we need more data and statistics so we can stop um, we can stop relying on anecdotal evidence and things like that, and we can get some hard data about our field and, and then, and then start correcting it, uh, if it needs to be corrected. So, all right, that's it. Thanks for, uh, thanks for listening and be sure to leave a comment if you have one. Thanks. That's it for another episode of the CRM Archaeology Podcast. Links to some of the items mentioned on the show are in the show notes for this podcast, which can be found at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash Podcast. If you like the show and want to comment, please do. You can leave comments about this or any other episode on the website or on the iTunes page for the episode. You can also email me at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com or use the contact form on the podcast webpage. If you'd like us to answer a question on a future episode, email us. Use the contact form on the website or tweet your questions with the hashtag CRMARCpodcast podcast or you can tag at arcpodnet in your tweet please share the link to the show wherever you saw it if you share crm archaeology related items on twitter or facebook or anywhere else for that matter be sure to use the hashtag crm arc so the community can see and comment if you'd like to subscribe to this podcast you can do so on itunes or on stitcher radio you can also type the name of the podcast into your favorite podcasting app and subscribe that way don't forget to go over to itunes and leave a review of the show it helps us get noticed so more people can find our podcast and benefit from the content Also, send us show suggestions and interview suggestions. We want this to be a resource for field technicians everywhere, and we want to know what you want to know about. Also, please consider donating to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Your donations help fund our bandwidth and contribute to our editing costs. This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle, and was edited by Chris Webster. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US dollars a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.